0: Life Church podcast. My name is Kayla Crum and I'm the worship pastor here at HLC. If God is doing something amazing in your life, we want to hear about it. Please email your story to us at info at hamiltonlifechurch.com. It is through the faithful giving of people like you that we are able to expand God's kingdom here in Chattanooga and around the world through the ministries we support. If you would like to give and be a part of Hamilton Life Church, please visit our website at hamiltonlifechurch.com or join us this Sunday. Thanks again for joining us today. We pray that God moves in your life through this message.
1: Open up to Jonah chapter 4 for me. Jonah chapter 4. We're going to go through the entire book of Jonah today, which is four chapters. So you're lucky to be in first service because we have to be done by a certain point. Uh, second service will be exciting. No, I'm just kidding. I'm giving you time to find Jonah because Jonah can be a little difficult at times between flipping through all the different minor prophets. Keep on going. Keep on going. You get to Daniel. You keep on going past Daniel. You start getting into uh, Zechariah. If you get to Luke, then hang back to another left because you went too far. Jonah's a short little guy there. Continuing our series, Entrusted to Lead, just starting to read here in Jonah chapter 4. Keep on flipping there if you're, if, uh, if you're looking for it. Um, it says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. And so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with compassion. I'm sorry, slow to get angry, yeah, filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive. If what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? And then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and he made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head and shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, the Lord, or God, arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. And then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And when the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there, it came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Just in case if you are a PETA fan in here, how does God feel about animals? He loves them dearly. He's interested in their well-being. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Thank you. You can have a seat for me. I do want to go through the book of Jonah. It was a bad joke, but we will go through the book today and this morning. It won't be terribly, terribly long. Uh, so I didn't want to just fill you with dread right off the start of the message. But it is a very important story. I want you to listen to the story of Jonah, especially if you're a kiddo in here. I want you to listen to the story of Jonah with fresh ears. If you're an adult in the room, listen to the story of Jonah with fresh ears because what I tend to notice when I hear the story of Jonah, especially if I'm thinking of it through a veggie tales sort of uh, worldview, is that the story tends to be very incomplete. These strong emotions that you see Jonah have. I read a book one time on leadership, and they talked about the bipolar leader. And they talked about Jonah, and they basically just said, Jonah was bipolar. He was super happy, and then he wanted to die. And then he was super happy, and he wanted to die. And I remember it being incongruent with what Scripture is actually talking about in the context of what is going on. Listen to the story of Jonah with fresh ears, and I want you to think about it in the context of what we've been talking about in our series entrusted to lead. This is now week four of our series. We're talking about the spirit we should have in loving people. If you can put 1 Timothy 4 on the screen for me. 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 12. Paul's writing to Timothy. We looked at all this a number of weeks ago. Pastor Billy spoke last week, so just a quick refresher. It says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but rather set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, Week one, we talked about the point that we are supposed to set an example. God's put people around you to be a thermostat. You are supposed to be a thermostat, not a thermometer, not reflecting the environment you're in, but setting the environment that you're in. Specific areas where you are meant to be an example, a model or a pattern for the people around you to follow are in your speech, in your conversation. Remember, we've been looking at this a lot from the King James Version in particular. The second week there, we looked at both of those. And what we say, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, from what you're saying from the stage, what you are literally preaching, the words that you are saying, make sure you're saying good things there, but then in your conversation or in your conduct, make sure that you are also walking these things out. You're not only talking the talk, but you're walking the walk. So we talked about how we live that out in our lives. All of this within the context that we need to have a heart for the Lord. How we set an example is like David with his mighty men, that God, your whisper is my command, that as we have that heart before God, he will elevate us, and the overflow of that is our speech, our conduct. And then starting two weeks ago, Pastor Billy again speaking, last week we looked at the third area. It says we should set, our, 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 set an example in speech and conduct, but then in our love. But we particularly took the word love and we divided it up. The King James Version this is all reminder, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It says, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example for the believers in word and conversation. That was, we looked at both of those together. But then the word love is divided up into charity. Love here is an agape love. It's an unconditional love. In our dealings, kiddos, with people that you have at school, make sure that you are not only just saying, yeah, I love the people at school, but like it should be shown in the way you actually talk to them. And the actions you have for them, the charity you have for them, but the word love here in this agape—it's what you actually are doing, but it's also your spirit. Everybody say spirit. Spirit. Think about what your spirit is. Your love should be shown in your spirit. Again, somebody help me out here. We have a lot of kiddos in here. I know the kid—they're doing one more of those kids trainings this morning and things, which are really, really important. But we have a lot of kids in here, and so I feel like. All the adults, you'll stay with me, but kiddos, I want to make sure you understand this too. What is your spirit? It's kind of weird, kind of a hard question. It's what? Kind of what makes you you? Kind of. You got an idea? Okay, your spirit, Jack. That's close. That's also kind of your soul-ish thing. Your spirit's that part of you that connects you to God. Basically, what Paul is telling Timothy here is, hey, you should, you know, love people, which means help people. Remember, we should refresh people like we looked at Onesiphorus a couple weeks ago. But it's also just your heart towards people. Have you ever done something for somebody and maybe you actually did something nice for them, but you still hated them in your heart? Like for you that here are, that are kids, that you have a brother or sister, your parent makes you go and help your brother or sister, but the whole time you're doing it, you're like, wow, I wish you were dead. I don't like you at all. Maybe you're here and, you, and you're in, uh, taking it back to the adults. Maybe you're here and you're at your work and your boss tells you to do something. And you're like, fine, I will submit to you and I will do it. I will technically love you in charity. But my spirit, the heart behind my action, it's not bright and shiny. It is dark. The spirit is not there. Paul's saying to Timothy here that, hey, you have to make sure you're actually doing the things but your heart for people also needs to be the correct heart. Your spirit, you need to set an example. You've been entrusted to lead. And so think about how do you love the unlovable in your life? Who are the unlovable people in your life? Like when I think about unlovable people, my mind goes to those Sarah McLaughlin commercials where it's like they're over and they're helping people that are in a third world nation. or You think of the untouchables in India. Like who are the true unlovable people in your life? It's not that. You know, if your phone rang right now, what would that name have to be that popped up on your phone that all of a sudden when you saw it, you were like, oh no, it's this person calling me. I hate that person. When they walk by your office at, at, at work, when JD walks by your office at work. No, I'm just kidding. Love JD. <laughs> you know, but when that person walks by, your, your heart gets a little faster, but it's not because you're so excited to see them. You're dreading them. You hate them. If they came to church on Sunday, like I do love in first service, it's a completely different dynamic in first service than second service because generally most of you all are volunteers and/or your kiddos and things. But as leaders, it is important. As the main, many of our main volunteers, it's important for us in this room that what if your greatest enemy walked into service on Sunday? How would you respond to that? It's tough. It's very tough. We get like you could, because you could show them charity. Hey, I will get you a cup of coffee and not poison it. That's technically what Jesus wants me to do. But what if they're in need? What is your actual spirit towards them? This is extremely, extremely important that we set an example that we're a model for this. A couple of quick verses on this. If you can put John 1 John on 3.16 uh, 3, on the screen for me. A verse we're familiar with, but I want to remind us. What does it mean to show charity to people? What does it mean to show agape love to people? Unconditional love? That means this. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us while we were still sinners, while we did not deserve it. We had not taken the first step. He took all of the steps for us and just asked us to respond. He gave up his life for us. And so we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. In our spirit, with the people that we have around us, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we should consider those around us as better than ourselves, That in that type of humility, that's how we should be living our life. That's what having a spirit of God is like, especially towards that unlovable person or those unlovable people. That we walk in a humility to go, you know what? Even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to leave you better than I found you. That is very challenging, very hard. Take all of this context and now go back into the story of Jonah. How many of you guys have heard the story of Jonah? I want to know kind of how much just straight ground level. is pretty much everybody heard the story of Jonah uh, and things. Okay, so I won't worry quite so much about context then in this uh, first service. And just jump into Jonah chapter 1. It says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai: Get up and go to the city of Nineveh and announce my judgment against it for I, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and he went in the... Opposite direction. Kids, say opposite direction. opposite direction. To get away from the Lord, he went down to the port of Joppa, and there he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarsus. God comes to Jonah, who is a prophet of the Lord at this time. Jonah lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And there's a verse, and we'll look at it in a minute here, in 2 Kings chapter 14, where you can actually see other references to Jonah. He had delivered a favorable prophecy to Israel. So he is known within the the, the nation as a prophet of God. God comes to him and says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and pronounce my judgment against them. Now, we look at that and say, like, okay, his judgment, that means, and ultimately what Jonah does is he goes and tells them, hey, Nineveh, 40 days, and then your city's going to be destroyed. You're going to lose it all. Jonah did know something. When you go into chapter four, he knew that in pronouncing the judgment of God, God, who was slow to anger, who is abounding in mercy, was giving them an opportunity to turn. This is a key thing about Jonah. Why does Jonah not go to Nineveh? This is one of those things we sometimes have to unwrap. Why does Jonah not go to Nineveh? You see sometimes like in VeggieTale things or you see sometimes in other ways represented. People a lot of times say that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he was afraid of the Ninevites, uh, because he was uh, afraid of public speaking, he was too big of a calling, all of that. What I want you to understand is Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians we have talked about in great detail here at Hamilton Life Church. They were a terrible, ruthless nation. Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh, not because he's afraid of the calling. Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh because he hates them, and he does not. Knowing that, hey, pronouncing judgment against them, what he ultimately says, and we'll come back to in a minute in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, is he does not want to give them the opportunity to repent because he hates them so much. In his mind, I read one commentator that said that Jonah was obsessed with justice. He looked at the Ninevites and thought, I don't care. I don't want them to have a chance to repent. And so God says, hey, go to Nineveh and pronounce my judgment against them, hoping that it draws them back to repentance. And Jonah goes, I don't want to do that at all. He goes in the opposite direction, down to Joppa. Literally, it's a land march from where he lived in like Gath-Heber or something like that, from Gath-Heber or wherever it was, over to Nineveh. No water that direction at all. He should have just gone on the back of a donkey taking a caravan, and bend all the way over there. It was like a 400-something-mile journey. No, he goes the opposite direction to a port in Joppa. And if you also notice this, generally in Scripture, uh, it it is believed back in the ancient times, there's kind of a running commentary that the Israelites did not like water. They generally avoided boats. If you actually look at that in Scripture, do you ever notice that almost every time they get into boats, something bad happens? Jonah is so willing to just get away from helping the Ninevites He's willing to brave a boat and get in there and sail off to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is an interesting location. We don't exactly know where this is, but it's most likely in Spain somewhere. It's believed to at least be somewhere in Spain. But if you can put it up on the screen for me, there is a map of what Jonah's escape looks like here. From where Joppa was, where he ultimately got on the boat, to Nineveh is just right there. That's all the distance. and He actually even lived a little bit closer than that. He's like, no, I'm getting on a boat The point of going to Tarshish was it was believed to be the most westernmost point possible before you ultimately got to that giant body of water called the Atlantic, which they had not crossed to this point. Jonah is saying, I'm not going there. Now, why doesn't he want to go to the Ninevites? Because he hates them. Why does he hate the Assyrians? Well, in fairness to Jonah's point, they were extremely unlovable. Saying they were an unlovable people is probably like the understatement of a lifetime. Remember, we've talked about the Assyrians. They were ruthless people. First masters of the Fertile Crescent. First nation or empire to conquer the Middle East. And they ruled by fear. When they would conquer you, their goal was to eradicate your bloodline. For kiddos, they would just destroy your whole family. There is an interesting thing that I did discover is you guys, how many of you guys have heard of Vladimir the Impaler? Who, keeping it in theme with October here, is actually who Count Dracula is based on, is Vladimir the Impaler, the guy that was famous for impaling people. He learned his effective impaling abilities from studying Assyrian tactics. I'll give you one gory detail. When they would conquer nations, they would send all of their citizens off into exile, one of the things that they would do is they would tie them up with chains, and they would take hooks, and they would hook them through their jaw out, and that's how they would handcuff you, through that. And then the chain would connect to them, because really all that happens is one that comes out, it just heals up. It's just really gory and gross. But, like, they have murals, and they would draw these on the walls. So when they would go to a new town, they would say, hey, we're going to do to you like we've done to all these other ones. Like, they were bad people. So it wasn't just like a grudge that Jonah had against the Ninevites like I have against people that are Packers fans. Like, they were brutal. They were unlovable people, which is why God is saying, hey, my judgment is coming to you because I see your actions. But Jonah knows if that judgment's coming, then there's also an opportunity to turn and there's grace and I don't believe these people are worth it. A couple of quick points just about this here. If you can put the first point on the screen. Why does Jonah not go to Nineveh? Number one, kiddos, you can write this down. These really aren't like three points for the message, but I just wanted to include three points so that you guys could get your kids' bucks. Because the Ninevites were really, really bad people, as we've discussed. They're really, really bad people. Another reason why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, you can put it on the screen for me, is because judgment was near for Israel. If you remember the Israelites to this point, they had come out of the promised land, they had come out of Egypt, they had conquered the promised land, they were a single united kingdom, but after Solomon, the kingdom had divided into two, there was the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel always had bad kings, from their first king in Jeroboam all the way to their last king, always had bad kings, and particularly by this point in history, the king at this point is a man named Jeroboam II. He reigned for 41 years. After he, his reign ends, there's only five more kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're all, all five of those kings, their combined total reign of all five of them equal to be 41 years and like seven months. Judgment was near for Israel. There is a verse, if you can put it on the screen for me, 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. This is the other reference I mentioned uh, about Jonah. It said, Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Lebo Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, that's our friend, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Go to the next part for me. But look at this. This is the, um, this is the spiritual state of Israel. For the Lord saw the bitter suffering of everyone in Israel and that there was no one in Israel, slave or free, to help them. And because the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel completely, and yet he used Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, to save them. Here's what I'm saying here. Jonah had delivered a, 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 a positive prophecy. This will come to tie in at the end. But he used an evil person in Jeroboam II to bring this prophecy about God had seen the suffering of the Israelites, and so he helped them regain some of the territory that they had lost, even using Jeroboam II to do it because he just loved his people that much. And there was nobody in this time to rise up, nobody that was godly in the nation that could rise up to help them for it. And so you just saw the state of it all. And it says right here that God had not completely decided yet to blot their name out. meaning He was giving them as many chances as possible, if you go and read Hosea chapter 1, which is written during the end of Jeroboam the second's reign, uh, Jeroboam, or Hosea chapter 1, it actually talks about this very same thing where it says that Hosea is meant to go marry a woman named Gomer, and it's representative of the nation of Israel. I know this is a deep aside, but at the end of that, it ends, in chapter 1, you can read like verses 5 and 6, God promises that, hey, because you guys haven't repented and haven't turned, I'm going, you are going to lose your independence and your strength is going to be crushed. Your name is going to end up being blotted out. But my point for Jonah is, Jonah is a prophet. He sees the writing on the wall. He knows, like, hey, I don't want to go help the Ninevites because I just don't like them. They're bad people. But also, Israel's judgment's close for Israel because they are not repenting. And then thirdly, you can put it on the screen for him, if he goes and he helps the Ninevites, any revival in Assyria could spell doom for Israel, which is... Ultimately, what ends up happening, just spoiler alert, the Ninevites end up having a revival. They end up repenting. And for a period of time, they turn their heart back to the Lord. And it spells God uses the Assyrians to actually come later on and defeat the Israelites. You can read that in the rest of 2 Kings right there. The point being is Jonah doesn't like them, So he wants to get away. His heart and spirit towards them is, God, I hate them. I hate them, hate them. I really, really, really hate them. Big time. And so he gets on a boat in Joppa, starts sailing off to Tarshish. But God, chapter one right there, it says that the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, the God who saves. So with Jonah and those sailors, and Nineveh's best interest in mind, and Israel's best interest in mind. It says that he sends a great storm against the boat, so much so that the boat is actually thinking it is going to uh, break apart. The boat is threatening to break apart. The sailors, when you go back and read this story here, and this is the part we're familiar with, so I'm just going through it quickly. The sailors, they also start thinking like, okay, clearly this isn't a normal storm. Somebody upset God. And it is fascinating. They start worshiping or praying to whatever God they can kind of even think of. And it is fascinating that the pagan and wicked sailors, they're the ones seeking God. And where do you find Jonah in this story? You go back and read it in chapter one. While the boat is about to sink, Jonah is down in the cabin and he is asleep because it is a representation of his relationship and what he was at. He had hardened his heart to the Lord and now he was asleep. And the wicked people are serving God or seeking after the Lord, but the pious, prophet is far from God. They come to him and they say, "What are you doing? Talk to your God or something because they knew like you're supposed to be this prophet like do something for us." And Jonah still, this is that other part that gets misrepresented all the time, is what happens is they go, "Hey, talk to your God because maybe he'll have some mercy upon us." And Jonah goes, "No, it's my fault. The reason this storm is here is it is my fault. I am running from God." And they're looking at him like the whole point, of what I want you to understand is the storm will stop If Jonah repents and says, you know what, God, I'm going to go do what you want me to do. But the whole time Jonah goes, no, it's my fault. And they're like, what are you going to do about it? And he says, throw me overboard. And a lot of times this gets represented as like, oh, that is such a noble thing. Jonah is sacrificing himself for these pagan sailors. But that isn't it at all. He says, if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. God really doesn't have anything to do with you. I think this is such an important thing, by the way. Just hear it separate aside on this. That when you don't have the right spirit towards people, you actually become a danger to the people around you. Jonah, even though he was the prophet of God and meant to be the man that was supposed to be a light to the world, to anybody and everybody, including these sailors, he is the one putting them in danger. You ever notice that when when people around you have a wrong spirit, they just damage all the people on their wake. Such an important thing. Jonah, though, goes, hey, just throw me overboard. Again, it's not a noble thing he's saying to do. He is still doubling down to go, I am not going. I don't want you guys to die, but I am not going. Throw me over because I want to die. I am not going to yield to what God wants. Throw me overboard, I will die, and that will put a checkmate on God. Literally, some translations say that he talks, or some commentators say that uh, in the original language, is that he is willing to have his name Blotted out from heaven, then go talk to the Ninevites. And this is why the sailors, if you go back and read chapter one, because I know we're just blowing through this really quick. What I want to leave you in this message is to go back and read Jonah, but understand the context we're talking about here so you can dig it all out for yourself. But this is the whole point where the sailors then pray to the Lord. They say, hey, don't judge us for throwing this man overboard. What they're meaning is they're not worried about their blood on his blood on their hands. They realize like this guy's kind of a bad dude. Jonah's name actually means dove. He is supposed to be like the Holy Spirit to people, but instead he's bringing this disaster to them all. When they end up praying, when the sailors pray to to God to say, hey, don't let his blood be on our hands, what they're saying is, hey, God, we don't want to be a part of his his disobedience. We're not engaging in it because of that. Like We're not throwing him over to be a part of it. But they chuck him over, and instantly the storm calms. And those wicked sailors, because God's not going to be denied, end up praising the Lord because they realize he's true. And then what ends up happening to Jonah when he gets thrown in the water? He starts to sink. And then what comes? A giant whale, a giant fish. We don't really know what it was, but a giant fish. I would like to make this point here. A lot of people in present day speak about the story of Jonah more as like an allegory or more as like a metaphor. And they say like, well, a real fish didn't come and eat Jonah. That's more just like uh, 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 an example of the emotion or something. Like it's just a metaphor for something else. No, what I'm telling you is I believe an actual fish came and ate Jonah. Uh, there have been multiple times in history, as you search this out, where, like, it was like last year, there was some sailor off in the distance, or off in some place that was a, a fisherman that fell overboard and then fell into the mouth of a humpback whale. And people are like, no, nah, you can't be eaten by a whale. I'm like, you can be eaten by a whale. If it's a sperm whale, they can eat fish. I did all this random research, so you're just catching all the research. A sperm whale can eat a fish up to 1,500 pounds, so they could clearly eat us. There is an old tale. People believe it to be true, some people believe it to be false, but there was a man in like 1891, I think his name was James Brantley, that was believed to have been eaten by a whale because he fell overboard on a fishing trip, he's a part of the British sailing whatever back in the day. They found him 15 hours later because they another boat had hunted down a whale and killed him. They were whalers and they found him alive still on the inside and after having been in the whale for 15 hours, he, he said he could breathe. He said the heat was overwhelming, but he had also come in contact with all the gastric acid and stuff, and they said that his, his physical appearance had always been changed. The gastric acid caused his hair to turn white, like all of his belly juice caused his hair to turn white, and like his skin to turn white and be scarred and things, so people knew, like, there's something weird about this guy, and Story goes, because some people try to poke holes in this, that he lived for like another 15 years and then ultimately died back in England and things. Point being, it's possible to get eaten by a whale. So Jonah, God arranges a large fish to come eat Jonah and then take him down. And the whole point of how, like when you then go and read chapter two, and I'm just going to go through this really quickly because we need to get to the actual chapter four. The whole point of him getting eaten by a whale is he experiences the judgment of God. He's in a whale for how many days? Three days. Jesus talks about this. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, they say, we demand a miraculous sign, and he goes, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to die for three days and three nights and then come back again. Meaning Jesus was saying, I'm going to go and experience death and overcome the grave and come back. He's referencing Jonah, though, because what did Jonah experience? He experienced the judgment of God. He experienced being separated from God. You go back and you read in chapter two and you look at some of the things Jonah says. He says, oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Just like, hey, I was arrogant against you, God, and I've realized what it's like to be apart from you. I sank down to the very roots of the mountain, literally because he's in the belly of a whale and the whale's going down. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. Since my life was slipping away. I'm just jumping around here. He experiences that judgment of God, and you see a repentance in Jonah's heart. He starts saying things like, in verse 4, I had driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your temple. My life was swiftly, slipping away, verse 7, and I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went towards your holy temple. I will offer praises, verse 9, offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all of my vows. Vows. He's a prophet, so he had this vow to like, do the work of God. God, I, will, I realize I'm wrong. I'll go, I'll go and do what you've asked. Chapter two is important. What did Jesus say was the greatest command? Am I losing you, kiddos? What's the greatest command? Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second but equally important command Jesus said? Love your neighbor as yourself. Point of chapter one, point of chapter two, leading into chapter three, is Jonah figures out that first one. You know what, God, you told me to do something, and I decided I'm going to do my own thing instead, and he ends up in the belly of a whale, and he experiences the judgment of God because of it. And so at the end of it, he says, God, I will worship you. You are my salvation alone at the end. God, I give you my heart. I'm putting you first. Lord, I realize I need to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, because salvation, I will fulfill all my vows. He makes that commitment to the Lord, and the Lord commands the whale to go up and to vomit him out onto the beach. He has got to be so gross, unbelievably gross. And then he starts walking back to Nineveh. You do notice something. Out of the two commands that Jesus gives, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the other one is love your neighbor as yourself. In the story of Jonah, this is Jonah's only figured out the first one. Okay, God, I will go and speak to the Ninevites, but I don't want to. I'm just doing it because you told me to. So his heart or his charity is there, but his heart still isn't there. You then see this in chapter three because what does Jonah go and say to the Ninevites? Does he give any reference at all to the grace of God? Remember, if you can put Jonah chapter four on the screen for me. Jonah chapter four, what does Jonah know God is going to do? He says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. We'll get to that in a moment. And so he complained to the Lord about it. God, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, you would would forgive them? That is why I ran free from Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're, ang- or you're eager to, uh, to turn back from destroying people. Jonah knew, like, if I go and I preach this word, like, they're going to turn and then God, you're going to forgive them because that's what you do. And so instead, he goes to Nineveh and he's like, God, I'm going to Nineveh because you told me to go to Nineveh, but I'm only going to tell them about the judgment part Jonah's prophecy is one of the shortest recorded in scripture, and it's only eight words. All he tells them, he doesn't tell them any of the good stuff. He just tells them, hey, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Again, kids, you can do charity. You can show people the action of love, but if your heart isn't behind it, you aren't fulfilling what God told you to actually do. So all he's telling them is, hey, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. And that's it. I'm not telling you that it's possible at all that you can turn it back around. I just want you to die. And so he walks around. It is interesting. Most commentators actually talk about Jonah that if he was in the belly of a whale for three days, like how that one guy, all of his hair turned white and there was like physical things that changed on him, is actually, even though all he was saying was the judgment of God, just the fact that he was alive at all spoke to the Ninevites that, hey, Maybe this God is gracious because if that man just survived in the belly of a whale for three days after doing all that and he's all bleached out and stuff, then maybe there is hope for us. And they start speaking this word. He goes around for three days all throughout Nineveh. It's a three-day journey to get to all the different parts of Nineveh. There's, many people believe Nineveh was about a million people at this point. Scripture says right here that there was 120,000 that didn't know the right from left-handed that were living in spiritual darkness. Some people say that might have been the total population. Some people say that might have only just been the kids that lived there, the kids who didn't know better from right or wrong yet, which is why God was so compassionate and merciful towards them. But Jonah starts saying all this. His heart's still far from him. I still hope all y'all die, but I'm just doing it because God told me to do it. But you see this amazing revival come across the nation, come across the, the, the capital. It's what I pray for our nation. It's what I pray for America. The king hears about this. The emperor of the Assyrian empire, he hears about it. And he tells everybody, hey, we are going to put burlap on. We're going to put sackcloth and ashes, which means just we're going to like, grovel before the Lord. And everybody's going to fast. We are going to seek God. Nobody's going to eat. And then he even says, not even our animals. Nobody's eating. The animals don't eat, nobody eats. Which is interesting because it's a reference to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, where it says that a righteous man even cares for his animals. Like you see that the Ninevites' heart completely changes to God. And what does God do? At the end of chapter 3, he changes his mind. Hey, I gave them an opportunity to repent, and they repented. So I'm not going to end up destroying them, which is the exact opposite of what the nation of Israel kept doing. God sent most of those, in the end of the Old Testament kiddos, most of those little tiny prophets that are only like a page or two long, I think all but three of them were spoken to the northern nation of Israel that was wicked, and they never turned around. They never changed any of them. But you see here the Ninevites do. And what is Jonah's response to it all? Is Jonah happy about it or is he angry about it? He's angry about it. And so God comes now and he deals with the second part of Jonah's heart. Okay, you're loving me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but now you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jonah, angry about all this. You go back into the verse part right there of chapter 4. This change of plans made him so angry. And then you see when we don't have the right spirit of God, do you notice that God's greatest qualities Jonah's complaining about God's greatest qualities. God, you're merciful. You're compassionate. Jerk. You're slow to get angry. What a turd. God, you're filled with unfailing love. (sighs) Lame. You're eager to turn your back from destroying people? That's dumb. You know, Jonah is forgetting. What did God already do for the Israelites? Hey, there was nobody righteous in Israel, and yet because I saw the suffering of the people there, I raised up a leader to still help them, even though he was evil, because I just wanted to help them. I was trying to give them as many chances as possible. The Ninevites, the same thing. Continuing on from there, we'll go through that last part quickly. Jonah is so angry. He goes east of the city, which is a picture of wickedness. Anything that was east referenced in the Bible is usually separation from God uh, because to the actual nation of Israel, east of the nation of Israel was a wilderness. So it means just camping in that part that's apart from God. And he sets up a house there. He sets up a hut there, meaning he is dwelling in this bitterness, and this hatred towards the Ninevites. And where the king, if you go back in chapter three, the king says, perhaps God will turn and he will show mercy upon us. And so they go all in to repent and say, God, please, please, please. And he does. It says that Jonah does the opposite of it. He knows, God, you've shown them great mercy, but I'm going to go east of the city and I'm going to live there because maybe God will still kill them. And I'd be super happy about that. But after 40 days... Judgment doesn't come, and the Assyrians are still alive. And this is where Jonah starts getting really angry. And he starts saying those things of, God, I wish that I was dead. I would rather be dead than have these people alive. And we don't, a lot of times we're not really honest with ourselves that that's usually how we feel about people. God, like, if, if, them, if, them, being, if them being helped, like, like, we would rather be hurt ourselves than see those enemies that we have actually be helped. God starts asking him a question. Do you, you have any right to be angry about this? Jonah doesn't respond. And then God does this really interesting thing. It's that weird part. It's why you never hear when the story of Jonah, nobody ever talks about this weird gourd at the end of it all in the worm. Usually the veggie Tales thing just ends after he goes to Nineveh and starts preaching and they turn around. But the, the whole point of chapter four is God dealing with the heart of Jonah. Jonah, while he's sitting in his hut and he's angry, he's just staring at the city. All of a sudden, God causes a giant gourd or this big leafy plant to come up and to provide shade for Jonah. And do you remember when we read in chapter four, was Jonah happy about the plant or was he angry about the plant? He was happy. Have you ever been super hot and then you get to go sit in the shade? It's like, oh, that is nice. It says that he was greatly pleased with this plant. NIV said that he was exceeding, or, or King James says that he was exceedingly glad about this plant. And then the next morning, God has this worm come. How many of you guys like worms? Nobody likes worms, except for Josh, evidently, because that's my son. God causes a worm to come and to eat through the stem of the gourd, or to eat through the stem of this leafy plant, and so it withers and it dies. And now Jonah, this is that point again. Then God sends a scorching east wind, it said in chapter 4 right there. Now, it wasn't just all of a sudden the AC went out and Jonah's like, that's it, I want to die again. The whole point is, no, it got really hot. Like, they're in like a desert environment. And so he is famished, he's hot, he's all that. Like, literally, he is on the point of dying all over again. And so he starts calling out to God, God, I wish I had died. I wish he had died. He literally is to that point. And God comes to him and goes, do you have any right to be angry again? And this time, Jonah actually responds to the guy. He said, yeah, I do. I have all this issue to be angry right here. He goes back and he says, yes, even angry enough to die. And then the Lord comes back and he tells him, no, no, no. Go back into those verses here in chapter 10 and we'll close. It says, the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. The NIV says, or many other versions say, they don't even know the right hand from their left. That's why people believe it's a reference even to children. And not to mention all of the animals. I am a firm believer that God just put that half a clause right in there, only for angiopenia. That's why it is in there. Shouldn't I feel sorry for this great city? Understand what's happening here. This is all just a metaphor for how God feels about people. Not just the Israelites, all people. The emotions that Jonah feels, the gladness and the distress, that's what God feels. The gourd coming up, those represent the people of the earth. That God finds great pleasure in us. He loves us. He loves you. God so loved the world, he sent his son to live and die on this earth so that if we believe in him, we wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. The exceeding happiness, the exceeding gladness that Jonah felt about this plant, he's like, that's just, he's telling Jonah, Jonah, that's just a silly little plant. Think about how happy you felt about that plant. Like, that's just a silly little plant. That's how I feel about the people of this earth. That means you and also your enemy. Like we look at Ephesians 2.10 that you are God's masterpiece. Create a new one. We're like, yeah, that's right. I'm God's masterpiece. That also means your enemy is God's masterpiece. God, you know every hair on my head. Yeah, you know every hair on my head. For a couple of you, that's like nine hairs. But for many of you, that's tough to count. It's more than that. But That also means he knows every hair on your enemy's head. God, your thoughts about me are more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. That also means about your enemy too. God loves people. Jesus, when he saw Jerusalem and he knew what was going to end up happening to it, if they didn't repent, he looked at them and he wept. The worm represents God's final destruction. Hey, the world is going to come to an end. He said the idea of that gourd withering. Jonah, how you felt that extreme heat, how you felt greatly distressed about that, that's how I feel about the idea of even one person not spending eternity with me, of not having a relationship with me. Jonah, you felt that about a gourd. Now picture this great city of Nineveh. Nineveh is described multiple times in Jonah as this great city on purpose just to talk about the magnitude of how many people live there. Jonah, this is Nineveh. You're this much crazy about a silly little plant, this is a whole city. And think about all the children that live in there that don't even know right from wrong. Think of all the other people. Think about the animals. Think about all of what this judgment that you are so quick to go. No, I would never reach them for the Lord. I will go to Tarsus if I have to. I will go. I will die. Throw me overboard because I am obsessed that they don't deserve it. He goes, you have nothing to do with this. You have nothing to do with this plant. You have nothing to do with it. I've called you to do something, but Joni, you need to have my heart with them. How you felt so distressed about this, gourd is how I feel about the idea of even any of these people suffering that judgment. The judgment's going to come. This earth is fallen, and that final judgment will come. But if you remember that great promise that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day, and God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, but he is Faithful, not wanting anyone to perish. He's giving us multiple opportunities to turn our life around, to turn our life around, to respond, to respond. God is making a reference to Jonah here of like, hey Jonah, wasn't I just gracious to Israel? If I was gracious to Israel trying to get them to turn around, why wouldn't I also be gracious to them? And we never hear the response from Jonah, which which isn't a bad thing. We never hear a direct response from Jonah, but what we do know is Jonah ultimately left that spot and he clearly went back to Israel because Jonah is not believed to be the writer of the book of Jonah because he didn't write it in first person, he wrote it in third person. But when he went back to Israel, it is believed that he began to share this story of his occurrence and how God changed his heart from, yeah, God, I will love you and do things. If you call me to do it, I'm going to fulfill my vow. But God, I also got to get my spirit right. And God, if the Ninevites need you, then I'm going to preach your, I'm going to preach your judgment that, hey, God, you've got to get your life right, but recognize that there's grace there. God, my spirit towards people are going to be right, too. And that's the testimony of Jonah, that he did change, because it's recorded in Scripture, what happened here. But the point for you and me is you have been entrusted to lead in your situation. Your family, the acquaintances you have, the people in your work, all those different things, like, you have been called to love them with an unconditional love. What does that love mean? It means that you lay your life down for them. In physical action, like Onesiphorus, you want to build them up. You want to encourage them and things. But in your spirit towards them, you have the same spirit that Jesus had. That said, God vengeance of you. If they come back and they don't listen and all that, then fine. The judgment's going to be on them. But, Lord, I'm going to give them every opportunity to leave them better. I'm going to give them every opportunity to love them. I'm going to do all those things. And what we know from Scripture is that when we act in that love of God like that, 1 John says when we show people that love, that God is love, and if we're showing people that type of love, you're showing them Jesus. You're showing them God. And that can change their heart. And Jesus tells the disciples that the way the world will know that you've been with me is by the way that you love one another. By the way that you agape one another, that unconditional love. Not just doing things, but the spirit behind it. And we've got to get this down. Because as a church and as people, really, you can't be people that just go through and maybe you do the right thing, but your heart be far from them. Because it doesn't matter. You become a resounding gong, is what 1 Corinthians 13 says. You become, it doesn't, you just become Jonah. Instead of helping people, you hurt people like you did with the sailors. Your spirit towards them needs to be like the Lord to go, you know what, God, you've shown me grace. And even if they're undeserving, I'm going to show them grace also. God, trusting that they'll turn. And if they don't turn, then that's on them. Let me close this in some prayer. God, I just pray that the story of Jonah would just set a hunger in our heart. God, I pray for each one of us, kids included, each of us in here. Lord, where there is so much to go through, Lord, would it be something that excites a hunger in us to go back and to study and get into your word? And God, as we get into your word, would it shine a light through the dark crevices of our heart? Father, would you show us right now, who are those people in our life that we have written off? It's not, that, it's not that maybe we're going to, if, 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 they're an, if they're an ex, it's not that we're going to mean, okay, God, that means I've got to get back together with them, or if they were abusive, I need to put myself in a position to be abused again. But it says, Lord, in my condition of my heart towards them, that, Lord, I want to always try to leave them better. Show them your goodness. Show them your light. Because they are still your child. And, Lord, as you have shown me grace, as Dwayne talked earlier, God, where you have poured out great mercy upon me, I want to pour that out also onto other people. Lord, I trust and know that as I show people that love, that's how they will know that you are alive and you are real. I will be your salt. I will be your light. Holy Spirit, where you start to reveal things in my heart now about who am I not caring for? Who am I not loving? Who am I angry or holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness towards? God, convict me of those things. And God, I release it to you Apart from our prayer here, just to every one of us, I encourage you, if there is a person that you feel like cursing, Jesus says to bless that person. That becomes that line of demarcation to go, God, am I angry towards them? Well, can you bless them? Try blessing them. And so, Lord, we bless those that curse us. Help us to be a light for you. You have entrusted us to lead, help us to set an example in this area. God, that when we are in a situation in our what, in our home or our work where we are where we are taken advantage of, Lord, would it not crush our soul or our heart, but Lord, will we rise above it and be your light to whoever it is. We love you with all of our heart. We pray this in the name of Jesus now. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us this Sunday. For directions and service times, please visit our website, HamiltonLifeChurch.com.